Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Monroe Live podcast. Today, we have an awesome guest, Ken Stewart, who is CEO and founder of Bright Road. And you have an amazing automotive career. You've been at a ton of places. We've crossed paths briefly in the past on a couple projects. You know a lot of people at Monroe. You know Sandy Monroe really well. Thank you for coming on the show. So if you don't mind, give your give our viewers and our listeners a little overview of who you are, uh, where you've been in the industry, and then we can get going on some great topics. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Corey. Um, I guess the best way to describe my uh, work and where I am today is to kind of think of it in three dimensions. One is I've been involved with startup companies, you know, an, an employee of startup companies, small companies, corporations, and conglomerates through, through time. If you think of um, like the company names in sequence, I was with General Motors, uh, started out in engineering uh, in General Motors. I was there for 26 years and then moved on to um, a company called ASC, American Specialty Car, here in Detroit, and then went to United Technologies Corporation, again, big company, then went to Proteon Electric, which is an in-wheel motor company that's a startup company that's still underway, and again, big to small, and then to Karma Automotive, an electric car company out in California, and then uh, since the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, I started my own company, which is Bright Road. And so I guess the third dimension is I've worked in a lot of chairs with a lot of different agendas. I started out in engineering, powertrain development, and so forth, then moved on to manufacturing, then to field sales, then to marketing, product planning, uh, business development. Um, So I've had to work the automotive industry from a lot of different angles, and I'm kind of like that insurance guy. You know, I know a few things because I've seen a few things. And so I decided to sort of put that all together and then uh, provide that as a value-added service to to different companies today. And my clients today are really coming from two different directions. One is they're a, uh, let's say, a legacy, either OEM or in the automotive universe, and they're making the migration to the EV space, and they need a little help with that, either because their products are becoming dated or they're entering the EV space and they need to tune up certain aspects of their business. Um, the other walk of life, I guess you could say, is the technology company that has something really innovative, but they don't know how to enter the automotive world, or they don't know how to talk the talk or who to talk to or, you know, uh, the greater Detroit or the global automotive business certainly is rather daunting to a lot of technology startups. And so I tend to offer my, my help with them on, on how to position themselves to be of more value to, to the automotive people. Yeah, that's great. So I'd like to know a little bit more about your time at GM and how that compares to your time at smaller companies. So can you go into like the cultural difference of working at GM, which is like almost sometimes people call government motors is so big and bureaucratic versus uh, Karma, which is maybe probably a lot smaller and you have a lot more freedom and it's probably a flatter company. Can you go into some of those differences? Yeah, sure. It's, um, I think, traditional conversation to say that a large established corporation is way different than a small startup. And the answer is, heck yes, it it really is different. Um, What's required of the individual is quite different. And certainly the pace of decision-making is different, and and the bureaucratic layers, as you mentioned, is quite different. When I was at GM, um, again, you know, many fields, engineering and field sales and product planning and and these types of things, but whenever you were making a decision, you had to, at least in my day, I, I don't have current experience with GM, but in my day, you had to rally the different people 
around this decision to lobby for that decision that you wanted to have happen. And then there would sometimes, oftentimes, be some invisible person that wanted to veto this thing. And you didn't even know who they were, but all of a sudden you thought you had the decision and then somehow it just ended up not going anywhere. Well, in, in a startup or a small company, um, the problems are pretty obvious and pretty evident pretty early. And chances are you've got the right people on the bus to say, all right, we know this is a problem. What do we do? And then we sit around and think about what's the best way to go, and then we go. And the, uh, the worst thing that they could do in a small company is do nothing. There's a bias towards action. And that's very exciting. And frankly, once I left corporate life to get into the smaller company life, which was called the second half of my career, it would be very hard to go back because yeah. I love the entrepreneurial atmosphere. I, I, uh, I joined um, ASC right after GM, and ASC had a, a pretty rigorous program to test employees, you know, the usual, yeah. you know, fill out all these different forms and, you know, what, what's the Rorschach test say and things like that. And um, I finally got done with all these tests, and there was some sort of psychological expert there, and he and I sat across the table. He said, how could you possibly stay in a large corporation as long as you did? Because I obviously had a lot of the trigger signals of having more of an entrepreneurial spirit, and, and yeah, I, I've been a lot happier in, in that mode. That's some great insight, and something Sandy and I talk about a lot of time. It's some organizations, you have to choose between the car or your career. So at a large organization, you mentioned there's an invisible person vetoing something. That may be someone who's actually focused on their career, oh, maintaining yeah. their position or their clout or who knows what, what, you know, what is the driving factor. But what we've noticed with some startups, particularly Tesla, we feel like the car actually takes priority over people's career ambitions. Yeah, I think that's be very true. Because the rapid... Uh, rate of change and the, the innovation we're seeing and the vertical integration and the reduction in fasteners and them deploying new technology over the course of four or five years, you and I, before we came and sat down, we went and looked at the Model 3, the Model Y, and the Model Y from 2022. And you can, you can clearly see that the 2022 Model Y with the two gigacastings shares almost nothing with that Model 3, even though they're the same platform separated by five years. A GM program or or product that'd be a five-year run five to seven year run for large truck or large suv where it would remain widely unchanged because of a lot of factors so completely different car versus career it's what kind of you were saying some of the examples kind of reminded me of that yeah i i completely agree with what you're saying i felt as though again in my day i'm not commenting on today's gm but in my day there were a lot of people that were in the career business and that was disappointing for those of us that wanted to create something yeah. and, and create change and, and create innovation. And GM certainly had a lot of brilliant engineering and technical people, but they really needed to be challenged to, to go at it faster. And to your point about Tesla, you know, there's a lot of, uh, boy, aren't they great, um, conversations going on. And it's well-deserved, but one of the aspects that I think is interesting is their ability to disregard the model change cycle of five years, yeah. three years, six years, depending on how big a change it is. They seem to be able to implement change control amazingly well. 
and you see the level of change on just the, the body and white structure out there, that would just freak out a, uh, yeah. a traditional OEM because of all the parts and process changes that have to have to reoccur on the fly. And that's a big change. Yeah. And I, I commend them for being able to manage that without shutting the place down forever. Yeah. So your time at Protean Wheel Motor, I want to ask a little bit about that. So wheel motors versus traction motors. Then you go to Karma, which had uh, a hybrid. I think it was a hybrid system. Yeah, it was a series hybrid. Series hybrid. So what's your thought on wheel motors and versus regular traction motors, you know, you know, centered in the car with some axles? And, you know, where, where do you stand on that? Because I know we have some people here. It's like religion here. Some people really believe the virtue of wheel motors. We also had the CEO of Lordstown in Edward Hightower, and I got to drive an Endurance uh, just yesterday or two days ago, and it was decent. You mm-hmm. know, I noticed a couple, you know, shutters here and there. But what's your thought on wheel motors? Well, I, I like them for uh, specific application, and I don't own stock in Proteon, so I've got to do all that sort of thing. I do still know the people that are there, yeah. and I really like the company, and I really respect the time that I had there. Um, they're an ongoing enterprise. They've been bought by a few individuals. They're now uh, BEDEO, I think is the company that bought them. It's a uh, English uh, technology yeah. firm. And their technology is great. They've got over 100 patents, and you know it, it's legit. And they've also done a lot of the rigorous uh, development, testing, and validation that you wouldn't necessarily expect at face value. And they've done a lot of incredible work there. And so it is durable. Um, you've got to get over the unsprung mass, you know, yeah. problem, right? Where everybody says if you put the motor out there, it's going to wreck the development and the the ride and handling. Well, you can actually engineer around that and and do just fine. The challenge that Proteon had when it was so close to getting bought by a major tier one automotive supplier, they they almost got bought up and just you know shot to the moon. Um, with the support from this company, but it didn't quite follow through. And the reason was the company was a little dismayed by the launch torque of of the motor. Uh, The Proteon motor, um, there are different designs that do it a different way, but the Proteon motor is direct drive. And the advantage is it's direct drive. It's uh, no losses of gear sets, no complications. No lash. No lash, quieter, all those good things. The disadvantage is it's direct drive. So the launch torque is not what some people are looking for. Um, But, my gosh, it's 100 horsepower and an 18-inch wheel, and you don't need anything else. Uh, That's pretty cool. The, uh, The inverter and all the controls for the motor are in the motor, which is amazing design. Um, simplification. And I know you folks years ago did a teardown and it should cost on, on the thing. And so you know the motor pretty well. There's a lot of, a lot of innovation there. And they've had some good um, experience with um, like the Ollie, you know, that people mover thing that looks like a loaf of bread with yeah. four wheels. And applications like that, or also where Proteon's been going with some of the um, light duty commercial truck applications where you don't need yahoo launch but but, um you need packaging you need low floor you need motors not to be in the way those are ideal for for what uh they do and i I think they've got a lot of potential in the right application it's more like the commercial space or the people mover space or maybe taxis or autonomous cabs in cities that are taking off real slow from a bus stop and only going i know they probably have potential to go high speed we had a they they do we had a protean wheel motor uh, 
Mercedes. Well, it was a Mercedes Benz that they put the wheel motors on. Yeah, it was it a, wasn't sponsored with Mercedes or anything. It, it was a Brabus uh, project. Yeah. yeah, I was involved in that. And yeah. there was a in-wheel motor on each of the four corners of a, a E-class Mercedes. Yeah. And yeah, and a big battery pack stuffed where there weren't people. And it was a really cool car. And it wasn't slow. It oh. was fast. But it just wasn't this, you know, two-point-something second car that a lot of people were hoping for. And um, so that was a turnoff for some. But uh, the technology is really um, sound. And they were also engineering a few years ago like a corner assembly. So think about a protean wheel yeah. on a... Um, a corner structure that's steerable. Now, all of a sudden, the concept of a car becomes easy, like bolt-on. Do you want this to be a, a spinning wheel or a drive wheel yeah. or, or you know, steerable or not? Yeah. And, you know, th- this car could turn 90 degrees and go into the, the parking parallel parking space, you know, yeah. and cool stuff like that. Yeah, there is a company out there called RE, R-E-E, that does corner modules, but they have a traditional motor, and it's it's geared more toward the uh, commercial truck space, class four and five. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bigger 19 and a half inch, you know, truck wheel with a, uh, they have a traditional supplier supplying the motor. I forgot. I think it was American Axle or Magna. Mm -hmm. Magna. Traditional motor embedded into their their assembly. 22 to one gear ratio. And Uh, then they have electronic steering. So each corner has its own little steering little baby half steering rack okay it's crazy and individual braking so, so like a little solenoid almost like a yep. giant rc car or something yep. wow in, and each corner can be replaced in an hour so mm-hmm. the the whole point of that was that you could sell a truck and you could have it in service for two or three years if one of the corners goes down you have a spare corner and it's big bolts and actually all the connections disconnect like this because all the brake fluid and all of the everything is contained it's only threaded fasteners to secure it to the vehicle and then off mm-hmm. and it replugs back in. And then there's a 15 minute computer calibration session and then it's ready to go. So an hour yeah. and 15 minutes. That's cool. Um, oh, one, um, one final um, pat on the back for Proteon is, you know, their level of up integration was really pretty cool. The, all the controls and brains of the motor were in the motor and so much of it was up, up integrated so that it's basically bolted to a conventional hub and they had a partnership with a conventional automotive hub maker and the idea was hey automaker you don't need to mess up your axle at all you don't need to mess up your your hubs this thing really does bolt on and it's really pretty cool and and it is the same width as a you know traditional tire Tire. wheel so you don't have to redesign the vehicle to put these things on so you could take a hybrid make it an all-wheel drive uh, two-wheel you know, rear wheel drive hybrid, make it an all wheel drive car. Pretty cool. And uh, so there are a lot of potentials out there. All right. So that was the first few topics. Is there anything you want to talk about? I say you brought a list over here. Well, I, I just thought that um, besides the fact that we wore the same shirt, yeah. we should uh, talk about some other things. I know that you folks have spent a lot of time on Tesla and I don't want to go back over the same activity, but um, there's a tremendous amount of news right now. Mm-hmm about the adoption of the North American Charge Network. And I, I just wanted to pile on what you and Sandy have been yeah. talking about. I think that's huge. Um, and, and there's some recent news as, as of the last couple of days. Of course, Ford said, yes, we want in. I understand you folks have had a little bit of influence in that. That's great. Um, GM said yes. Now, Rivian has said yes. So they're on board with the North American standard. 
And I just read a piece this morning from uh, Peter Rollinson from Lucid, and um, I know Peter, and I like him, and, I, and, and I'm rooting for Lucid. I don't have their stock yeah. or anything like that. I, I want them to win, but I thought, oh, Peter, I wanted to grab him by the lapels and shake him a little bit because he was talking about, um, yes, it's great, you know, but when the day is done, it's only two different plugs. What's the big deal? We ought to talk about high-voltage chargers in the public space because that's really the, the end game. And uh, I'm paraphrasing his article, but, but I thought, Peter, you're missing the point. This is huge. Mm-hmm. This is now um, setting the stage for a common standard in the U.S., which will free up the EV industry to a, a much greater degree than anybody yeah. ever thought. And this is perhaps the decision, one of the top five decisions of the decade, I think. And uh, I think you've mentioned, and I agree that, you know, uh, Elon Musk has now cornered the, the corner gas station, yeah. right? And I'd love to see what the business model is. How much money do they make when somebody else charges on their charger? Um, but yeah, uh, fast forward 30, 40, 50 years, basically the street corner is going to be the, the, the charging station. And ultimately, it will be derived from the, the Tesla design. And that's got to mean something for an annuity for them. Yes. Um, the other thing is, you know, it's often compared to like, you're too young for this, but the beta VHS yeah. stuff. And when my kids were real young, um, VHS and beta recorders were pretty expensive. So you'd go to the store and rent them actually when you wanted to video your kids. And so I'd go to the store and, and I could rent a beta system or a VHS system. The beta system was better, but the beta system lost because VHS just smothered the market with movie titles and and made it more ubiquitous quicker. Um, In this case, with the North American plug standard, uh, beta won because it's clearly the better um, way to to charge a car, and that's proven on about every metric you can think of. uh, To me, an interesting byproduct of the times is there are some companies that have been popping up where their sole job was to be a third-party service provider to the CCS uh, charge system to help with uptime. And I thought, well, that's cool. That's entrepreneurial. You know, there's a need for that. But then I thought, well, who would pay for that? Is it the utility company that's providing the electricity? Is it the Walmart where the charger happens to be at the corner of the parking lot? Um, Is it the consumer? Because, you know, they may not go to that... Yeah. charging location every time. So I wondered how were they going to get paid as a service provider. Now we've got clearly a system that, that's going to be maintained and the uptime will be monitored and we've got government money that's going to come in and give this thing, you know, yeoman's duty. And I, I think it's just a huge uh, thing. And and I'm waiting to see people wake up in the next two to three years and how important yeah. this really is. So I'd like to get your thoughts on the data that Tesla will be able to collect from this. So right now they're collecting a tremendous amount of data on charging habits, the length people charge, the state of charge that people show up at certain uh, charge stations. And I'll give you an example. Sandy and I took a road trip and we drove from Kalmouth Falls, Oregon to Reno, Nevada. At the time, there was no supercharger in between. Yeah, you you were on the middle of the desert, right? Modoc Desert, yeah. And it was... uh, 305 miles, and I think the car had 320 miles of range. We showed up with 1% left, and the car was driving real slow. 
Well, since that time in 2021, they now put two superchargers along two potential routes, one through Susanville, California, and then one a little further north. And if you look at the map, maybe Eric will find this and put this in, um, you can see that they're there now. And then that would have allowed Sandy and I to drive much faster, not worry at all, charge, and just get going. So I think they potentially use the data, people showing up at Reno either almost on empty uh, it's like, wow, people do make this trip because you can collect the data points of when we charge there and there and easily figure out where people are stretching it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll be able to collect this data on more cars now. What do you think they're going to do with that data? How valuable will it be? Yeah, well, I think in the near term, uh, there's no reason why they couldn't, and they're probably doing this already, they have an expert system that's monitoring where are the VIN numbers going, who's got the longest trip between charges. Oh, let's add another charger. If I'm Tesla and I'm going to spend the next incremental dollar on the next charging location, I want it to be optimal, and that data can help them do that. So, so that's obviously a, a near-term benefit where they're going to spend money wisely by helping the, the network. The, the next thing, though, is obviously battery life and how often do people charge. And we could get all creepy now and say, okay, given their demographics, how do they drive? Where often do they, or how often do they make the long trip? Yeah. Um, then, then all of a sudden, gee, um, road sign people want to know that yeah. data. Yep. And I'm driving uh, on the location. My my uh, younger son lives in Nashville, so let's say I'm doing the route to Nashville like I do from time to time. All of a sudden, the billboard changes over to you know the the kind of salty snack I buy, and yeah. and that starts getting a little bit um, like. Um, what Minority Report and some of those movies, yeah. but but it's very doable. And I think the connection of consumer advertising is inevitable. Um, I, I hate to see it come, but it's inevitable. And the data is going to be valuable to automakers. The data is going to be valuable to research and analyst companies, to business firms. On and on it goes. And then your thoughts on the plug itself from a hardware perspective on the vehicle. Do you have any insight there? Um, compared to CCS, or did you have any uh, work with that when you are at Karma? What plug did Karma use? Do you remember? Yeah, Karma went to the CCS because that's yeah. where it was going to go, and it had to upgrade a tremendous amount of, of the car. As as you know, the Karma story, mm-hmm. it was the Fisker Automotive Company. Uh, Fisker Automotive developed a car called Karma. They were somewhat of a flash in the pan right around when Tesla started, uh, they went out of business, and then when Chang Auto, a large parts group from China, bought the assets of the company, of the former Fisker company, and then Karma Automotive began. I joined them when it was about mm, 150 to 200 people, and I left when there were about 2,000 people, and we were making cars. And in the process, uh, to the credit of the engineers, I wasn't doing this specifically, but the engineers were re-engineering that car in very good ways. New drivetrain, new battery new structure, taking 300 pounds out of the car while improving the structure. I mean, amazing things that were done. We reskinned the car. Um, the fundamental points of the sheet metal were the same, but the, the skin and the styling were upgraded. It became connected, much like the Teslas, and that was relatively early. You know, that was 2018. Yeah. And so, so the company did a lot of good things, and the, the charging and, and all that were upgraded to the day. Um, I think anybody who sits around pondering whether they should stay with CCS or not, they should just move. Don't, don't, yeah. don't look back. Just, just move. So back to the Peter Rawlinson comment you made, um, 
are you familiar with some of the tests that people have done putting charging a Lucid at a Tesla charging station? Because right now there are some select Tesla charging stations that have something called the Magic Dock, which allows you to take the NACS plug, plug it into this little port, and it pulls out a CCS adapter. Are you familiar with that? Um, a bit, yeah. So you can take right now, but they're only at select places. There's yeah. one in New York or New Jersey, which a lot of YouTubers have gone right. to. Where there's film. common ground in the, in the, uh, the uh, road infrastructure, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think Tesla started doing this so that they could at first get some of the federal funding because federal funding was tied to you had to have CCS available. So this allowed a Tesla person to pull up and plug in NACS. Yep. And if you pull up with a... F-150 Lightning or a Lucid, you could pull the Tesla app up, select the post you're at, unlock the dock, and charge your vehicle. And um, uh, a guy named Kyle Connor of Out of Spec took his dad's Lucid to that Tesla charging station, unlocked the magic dock, plugged it into the Lucid, and it was only charging at 50 kilowatts. So even though it was capable of 350 and it would only charge at 50 and it had to do with the 800 volt system not interfacing well with Tesla's chargers, which are essentially built and optimized to charge Tesla vehicles at their peak rate and preconditioned perfectly when you show up. So I think that 800 volt and thousand volt EVs or 900 volt EVs that are out on the market uh, don't benefit they actually are hindered by the Tesla charging infrastructure because they have to do a lot of, a lot of conversion. conversion. Yeah, that's right. And the Hyundai Ionic uh, 5, we have one here all tore down. It uses the rear inverter to do some of the up or down converting mm -hmm. to get the charging so that you can charge the battery. So um, do you think Peter's comments are based off of that? Like, it doesn't benefit Lucid as much because they're on the wrong voltage? Well, I, I'm only speculating, but I suspect that they're looking at high voltage and embracing it because their batteries are so big and so capable of mm -hmm. taking charge. So, you know, they benefit from a lot of voltage coming from the, the charge port. Um, so he wanted to focus on that as kind of a halfway advertisement to their technology. But again, I just felt like, Peter, the topic is about... Which system, the commonization? But anyway, we'll, we'll let that go. I, I wish them well. Um, now, going back into my ancient history in the EV1, I was involved with kind of the second half of the EV1 program at General Motors, and that had inductive charging, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that got canned when California basically wrote the rules to say, no, you're, you're not going to do that. We're, we're going to go to the other kind of direct charging rather than induction charging. And I felt like that was a loss at the time because inductive charging had a lot of merit. Not as efficient, but very safe. And uh, it was pretty cool. What are your thoughts on the EV tax credits? The IRA, are you familiar with the $7,500 oh, yeah. tax credit? I think that helps, pardon me, <clears throat> I think that helps a lot of people. Um, because you can immediately discount, you know, oh, gosh, it's 45. No, it's not. It's $38,000 and that sort of thing. And if you look at the market, you know, we've gone from the innovators into the early adopters and, and who's beginning to, to absorb the volume of EVs coming. And pretty soon we'll get into the early market um, people, you know, into the more of the mainstream. And those people especially, I think, will appreciate the, the tax credits and the benefits. And yeah for the industry to absorb all this production capacity that's coming in EVs, I think we're going to have to sustain that mm -hmm. for a while yet. And uh, beyond the tax credits, uh, 
what are your thoughts on the Chinese EVs and the tariffs that we have to kind of keep a Chinese EV EVs from coming? I think we have 28% tariffs. Yeah, uh, that's, that's going to be very important to watch. I think it's the right thing to do. I hate to see it, but it's, it's a natural consequence of where we are. And if, if you look in the future, I think that we're all going to have to be very mindful of sort of the geopolitical politics yeah. of, of all of this, not only tariffs, but also is there potentially going to be hoarding of, you know, the, uh, the raw materials and some of those scary things. I hope that's not the case, but free enterprise um, has its limits when a, a country needs to develop a certain kind of industry. And you look at the history of, of countries and how they develop, they all want to develop their auto industry. Yeah. Um, the only thing that's perhaps beyond that is to develop a, a large airline industry, yeah. right? So everyone, for the sake of the, the people's socioeconomic benefit, they, they like to develop an auto industry for their country. And now we've got everyone on the same starting line with EVs yeah. for the first time ever. So there's some natural consequence where I think different countries need to do it. Clearly, we were dependent on China over the last several years. So the recent developments in some of the, the taxation and, and the uh, encouragement of building here um, make some sense. And if the U.S. is going to compete globally, it's got to uh, incentivize investment in this country. And I, I think that that's just how it has to be. Yeah. And I'm, I'm expecting the other countries to do the same for the same reasons. But the outcome is that we all potentially could be building some walls between each other, which obviously doesn't make the industry as, as free and open and, and low cost. Yeah. I do think it's working. I mean, the amount of battery factories that are going up right now in the oh, United yes. States are crazy. And, yeah, to think and, that and the decision-making is quite yeah. quick. Once these, um, uh, the infrastructure bill was passed, people really did start to jump on the bandwagon. And there is quite a financial incentive if you build your batteries here. And yeah. Yeah. Another interesting aspect, I, I hate to get into this, is the local activity. You know, if you set up a battery plant in a area of the country or an area of a state, like maybe perhaps western Michigan, uh, do people resent those jobs because it's tied to, let's say, a foreign country? A bizarre state of affairs, but um, it, it's also kind of percolating out there. And everyone wants to embrace more work and more jobs and high-paying jobs, but all of a sudden we're just so politically polarized that some people want to judge it based on where the jobs are coming from. Yeah, and it's amazing how people will judge foreign OEMs even though some of the most American-made vehicles are from foreign OEMs. Yeah. It ju I just saw a list recently released, and it ranked that most American-made vehicles based on all the parts that go in them. Top four, of course, Tesla Model S, X, 3, and Y. Next was like a Honda Passport. Then it was another Honda. Then it was a Toyota. Then it was a Honda. It was like the top 10 yeah. were primarily Japanese OEMs and Tesla. Yeah, meanwhile, the U.S. OEMs, the, are, are, the, they're, they're the thump your chest, I'm, I'm American, they're, yeah, their they're content is, is uh, oftentimes from offshore. Yeah, the engines and transmissions are oftentimes built in Canada or Mexico, and uh, a lot of the frames are built, like frames will come in on trains, I've seen them. It's like these frames are probably welded up in mm -hmm. some other country. Mm-hmm. Uh, for trucks and whatnot, so... Yeah, and I think that the loyalty to different manufacturers and where they come from is a generational thing. Let me, let me give you a, 
a story from ancient history. When I was a student engineer, I, I was a, a student at Ford uh, while I was in college. During the summers, I, I you know, carried papers and did those things yeah. that you do when you, when you have a summer intern job. And it was strike time in the late 70s, and, or I wasn't Dearborn. And uh, a person had parked their GM car in the Ford parking lot. And when I went out at the end of the day, there was a pile of rocks sitting on the hood. It's like, get your GM car out of this parking lot type of thing. And it was a beautiful yellow paint job, right, with a big pile of dusty rocks on top. I thought, ooh, okay, so this is the environment we're living in. But, you know, that was the Ford GM debate of the day a long time ago. Then there was a big debate about, you know, Japanese, don't you, you know, dare buy a Japanese car. That, That was pretty popular, especially here in Detroit. But to your point, you know, look around a lot of supply base is is multilingual right yeah and i think generationally we've gotten over that um top selling car in the u.s uh has been the rav4 built in canada from toyota from japan so yeah it's uh it's blurred and i think generationally looking forward we're going to see that with evs where it's not going to be either or. It's just gonna. It's just gonna happen. Yeah, and I feel like the mainstream media and even Detroit is not recognizing the fact that Tesla has built a massive factory in China that's not a joint venture, a massive factory in Germany that's not a joint venture, and it, the Model Y is the best-selling car in the world right now. Yeah. It is an American car company. With the best-selling car in the world the first quarter, I think they sold 267,000 vehicles in quarter one, which overtook all the Toyotas. I think it was the Corolla and the RAV4 were in one. what country was that? The 260-whatever? The world. Uh, the w- world, yeah. Okay. Global. Global volume, yep. That's so it's right. on pace for over a million. Yeah. And, and I think the leaders were in the high 800,000s last year. Yeah. So, so is that news to you? No. Uh, Num- number one. It's it's not news to me, and it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, first quarter, they sold um, a little over two-thirds of what GM sold in the first quarter this year in the U.S. And they're, depending on how you measure, they're a 20-year-old company from day one when they started. They're a 10-year-old company from when they started selling. And, and really a five-year-old company from when they got out in, out in the NUMI plant. Yes. So I, I look at things and, and as pre, pre-NUMI and post-NUMI. Uh-huh. So... Uh, Sorry for interrupting, but I talked to somebody on the phone yesterday, and they're like, hey, there's this uh, guy from Tesla, whatever. And I said, when was he there? And he left at this point. And I said, well, you know, everything after that point is where they really hit their stride. When they built Giga Shanghai, when they built Giga Berlin, where they built Giga Austin, now they're essentially laying out the groundwork and the framework. of Model 3 and Model Y were really starting to cook, too. And once Model 3 hit its stride, and then they started making changes to that on the Model Y, that's like new Tesla and then like startup Tesla. Yeah. And, and I think there was a change in posture where before it was like, we belong, we exist, like look at us. And now it's like, there's no longer that imposter syndrome. No, I, I think that that is uh, an incredible track record and I'm aware of it. Perhaps it's not mainstream news because, you know, there is still a love-hate relationship for the new guy, even yeah. though they're the the dominant force in, in EVs along with BYD globally, perhaps. But yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. So um, question for you. I see all the automakers chasing EVs. Some are farther along than others. Everybody's waking up. I mean, the, the reaction to, to Toyota stock 
when the new CEO said, okay, we've got an EV plan after all, and the stock went up. Remember a few years ago, uh, an OEM from Detroit launched their big new truck, which is, you know, obviously the monster base for profitability. And the press said, well, yeah, but where's your EV? And <laughs> so, so now we've got all the automakers creating EVs. They're coming on, uh, online. The next two to three years, number of new models is going to just explode. If, if you're waiting to buy a cool new car that's powered, you know, electrically, you're going to see it. If you don't see it yet, you're going to see it in the next two, three years. Is there going to be overcapacity of EVs? And, and I say that um, intellectually and gently because I'm a fan of EVs, but I'm also able to hold sort of two truths up in the air at the same time. Yeah. And EVs are ultimately the best thing. But I've often equated the market to like the past with hybrids and the past with other technologies where it goes from starvation to supply capacity to overcapacity compared to what the consumer is willing to yeah. absorb. And I'm wondering if three and a half years from now, there's going to be a great sale on EVs because, you know, it, nobody can get it right at a whole yeah. industry level. I'm just what, wondering what your thoughts are. So my answer is yes and no, and I'll, I'll explain why. Well, you've, you've got to choose one. I'm sorry. So it is yes, there will be an overcapacity at high price points because high price points are what are, are profitable for EVs. Yeah. So look at GM le leading with the Hummer, the Lyric, the very expensive vehicles, which are traditionally low volume. So low volume, high margin, that section of the market will be saturated mm -hmm. because Mercedes and BMW and all the luxury players are, are easily able to play in there. It's also been the price points of Rivian's and widely Tesla's Model S, Model X, and the high-end Model Ys are expensive. Mm -hmm. So that 50,000 to 100,000 uh, range for EVs will satisfy customers' needs. They'll have the range that you need. You'll have the battery size that you need. You'll have the technology that you need. You'll have ADAS capabilities. That has been... Uh, widely dominated by Tesla with the S and X in volume numbers. So I think Tesla will have a ton of competition with the S and the X competing against all the new players because that is where it makes sense to enter right now. But where my answer for no, I think there'll be starvation for the low-cost EV because everyone is still struggling on the cost structure yeah. of a car. Yeah. And the traditional OEMs cannot make <clears throat> a low-cost EV profitable and Mary Barra said it. She was yeah. interviewed. She's like, we won't see a profitable EV from thirty to forty thousand dollars until twenty thirty. The reason she said that is that the core architectural elements of a of a standard uh, OEM are not set up to build a profitable vehicle. Relationships with traditional suppliers um, don't allow for the types of vertical integration and unique thinking that we're seeing out of the designs from some of the startups struggling with over the air updates and the yeah. software defined vehicles. I feel like a lot of the traditional OEMs are three to five years behind. Jim Farley was interviewed on Robert Llewellyn's uh, podcast and he went into depth on how difficult it is for a traditional OEM like Ford to work with all of the electrical modules to get them to talk together in a similar way that yeah. Rivian and, and Ford uh, Rivian and Tesla. So there's a lot of barriers to uh, have a race to the bottom. So it's, it'll be very easy to saturate that high-end market. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where everybody's leading with. So Well, everyone has to lead there because you've got to make some money while yeah. you're in the process of building scale. Or, or lose less money. Lose even. less money. Yes, that, that's right. So it's a race to scale, perhaps. 
And perhaps Mary Barra's comment was, I'm not going to be at scale to get my profitability at the low end until I've got this much momentum going. And, and so that's going to be very interesting yeah. to see. And, and to your point about software and the module complexity and all those things, that's now becoming expected. And over-the-year updates, although they save, you know, it does make the car more complex. And um, it, it's more complex for the consumer, too, just to, to sidebar. I did a uh, consulting agreement work with uh, traditional OEM. They happen to be, be based in this town. And the uh, charge was go out and talk to our dealers and let's assess how ready they are for all these EVs that they're about to sell. And they were already selling some, but the, the volume uh, hadn't really hit everybody yet. And so I had interviewed uh, quite a few dealers directly, mostly about the service aspect of things. And what we found was interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll be general because it's, it's their data. But there's EVs and then there's the connectivity part. Yeah. The EV part was relatively straightforward uh, in the sense that you just have to educate people on how to drive and the time it takes to charge. And some people are lead foots or they, they like to, you know, bounce the throttle and yeah. do silly stuff. And, and yes, when it's cold in the winter, things are going to change. Once they get over that, their EV acceptance is relatively easy. Their challenge, this particular OEM's challenge, was the software updates and how consumers were having to deal with that. Two things. Um, they'd get an update on their phone. Hey, your car's getting an update tonight at midnight. And the reaction was, oh, my God, does that mean my car's broken? What do I have to do? You know, there were a lot of questions yeah. that were raised by that unnecessarily uh, because the communication was new to the customer and perhaps the communication wasn't very clear. The other is there was a bit of a burden on the dealer because a lot of the people with their over-the-air updates would come in and Sometimes it'd be something simple like, hey, I lost my radio stations. What do I do? You know, okay, so there's a ghost in the machine and, and the company had to fix it. Okay, fine. But it required a download. Um, then there was the updates again on the phone. What does this mean? Or my car gave me an update. What does this mean? Can I drive it or yeah. not? And so the consumer understanding of what the updates were, what did it mean to their car and their lifestyle, was a real challenge. And the burden was often put on the person that is in the drive-up lane in yeah. the service organization oh, yeah. because they had to know everything, right? And this new technology came down. All these cars come pulling in, and oftentimes in some of the smaller towns, it's, you know, hey, George, my car did this. What, what do you yeah. – can you fix it for me right now even though I don't have an appointment, you know? And the real-world uh, uh, adoption of software integration was, was challenging. And then, obviously, it took time for um, new things to be uploaded, sometimes hours, sometimes overnight, and that was a real pain for the customer. And so quite interesting. Yeah, it really sounds like an interesting study that you did. Yeah. Um, another question I have for you is the, related to the adoption of EVs. So you, thought there might, you think there may be an oversupply in the near future. You're, that's the first time I've ever heard of someone mentioning an oversupply of EVs, but I kind of get it. I kind of understand because the Chevy Bolt, was for sale for essentially twenty five grand, thirty grand, and I don't think the Chevy Bolt uh, total sales ever eclipse a hundred thousand in a year. I think fifty, forty, fifty thousand. So mm -hmm. even though the, it's, so some people say, oh, it's the price point, but I really think it's a balance of price point and uh, functional objectives for the for the consumer, where they they get the same 
they get a fulfilling experience with an EV, meaning range above 300 and uh, fast charging speeds and, and other things. So my question for you is, uh, w- what percentage of vehicle sales in 2030 will be EV and what will be internal combustion engine in the United States? New vehicle sales? New vehicle sales. Okay. Because uh, it's very important to, to determine whether we're talking about new vehicle sales or the percentage of the car park. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and so we, we could set that one aside. But I've been in the EV business, I'll say, 25 years. And uh, the fundamental thing is, will it fit my lifestyle before I buy this car? And that's not new news, but we always need to go back and revisit that. And so, yes, it's about range, but it's about will it fit my lifestyle or not? And so people will either be the innovator or the early adopter or the fast follower or the laggard and all those other terms, depending on their situation. And I think the 50% number that a lot of people are kicking around by 2030, I think it's going to happen between 2030 and 2035. Okay. Um, I'm not going to give a specific year because there's a lot of variables that you and I don't know about. Is there going to be a recession in a year? All well, right. Political factors. Political factors. Um, supply chain disruption. Black swan event. Black swan event. I hope not. Oh, my gosh. We, we had enough of that the last few years. And also, uh, to the extent that range and the infrastructure that we talked about is going to address the needs of somebody that lives up in the UP, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what happens in, well, I'll I'll give you a specific example. I had a really interesting conversation while I was up north with a guy that owns a Model S who lives in Chicago. And his point was, I love my Model S. I don't even own a home charger because there's chargers all over the place. Um, When I need service, it's down the road. Why doesn't everybody buy a Tesla Model S? Because I'm in love with it. And again, I, I heard that yeah. 25 years ago. Like, I love my EV. How come everybody's so stupid? Why don't they understand yeah. why it's so good? But I said, well, great. Um, I know someone down the road that owns a Model S from where we are now. We were up north. And he has a three-hour drive to a service location. And when there's a physical event where he's got to have parts changed out, that's a big deal for him. Oh, by the way, the nearest charger is 45 minutes away, you know, supercharger. And so it depends on your lifestyle, sir. (laughs) And I meant that respectfully because you really do need to get outside your own situation to decide are the masses going to absorb all this or not. And um, jury's still out. That's the reason why I hold these two truths in air at the same time is I'm a firm believer, but we've got to get both the range, the charging network, and the ability for people to see themselves using it for their lifestyle. to come along. And I do think that there's momentum in the sense that uh, an EV that gets seen by someone will help sell an EV. You know, the more yeah. common they are, the more there will be a rate of sales. But but I think it's, it's quite interesting. So could I change the subject? Yeah. All right. So next, well, this year, let's say, right around this time of year, this is the 20-year anniversary of when they killed the EV1 at, at GM which is kind of an interesting story. And, and the reason I bring this up is um, I was interviewed by Automotive News last year about, you know, give us some reminiscence about it. And I was there during the second half of the program. I joined in 1999 and stayed with it until the very end. And, of course, that movie, Who Killed the Electric Car, and 
all that stuff. And I was a GM employee. I was a director. I was, I was director of new ventures at the time. Yeah. And just to show you the bureaucracy of General Motors, I had six bosses, six different bosses at the time. Because I was tied to R&D, I was tied to public policy, I was tied to sales, I was tied to service. And my job was basically the interface to all the EV1 owners and the dealers and, and service and sales and market readiness and things like that. So uh, I'm here to confess and to get it off my chest. Uh, Rick Wagner and the, the people that made a lot more money than I did made the decision to kill the EV1. But I was somewhat the grim reaper. I, I had the job to collect them all. And um, it was a dark year in 2003 when I, when I had to do that. And we had all sorts of crazy stories that were written about. And 90% of them were true. You know, we had upcoming actors and actresses handcuffing themselves to the door handle saying, don't take my car away. And, and uh, we, we, we had to get them all. And GM had a very large legal department at the time, and they still do, I'm sure. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure that every single VIN number was accounted for. And of course, the vehicles were all leased, so they were technically GM's property. But the leasees, call them owners for the moment, they loved their car. They were passionate about their car. They were, they were zealots about their car. So that job of having to rip them from their cold hands was a very difficult job and, and uh, a, a dark day. How many went unaccounted for? I thought there was like one that ended up in some museum or something. Well, there's one at the Smithsonian that was donated. Uh, I helped the donation, my, myself and, and my boss, Bob Purcell. We went there and donated to the Smithsonian. And their rules are you have to have a functioning vehicle for us to accept it. And so we made one uh, exception because of the, the honor that that was to have a vehicle at the Smithsonian. So that vehicle is drivable, but there's a lot of paperwork associated with that so that they don't do laps around the city. But um, the others were all dismantled for high-voltage safety reasons. And, yeah, a lot of them were crushed. And uh, some of the owners were coordinating with people that owned helicopters, and they were actually following the trucks that were hauling the EV1s to the desert proving grounds. And they were, like, radioing each other, I see the truck, it's on this highway, it's heading this way with, with six more. Oh my well, gosh. It, it was really an amazing time. So, How many were there total? About 2,500 produced in total. And uh, the dominant sales were obviously in California and some in Arizona. We also did some business with um, what was called Duke Power. They're now Southern, uh, Southern Companies Group now for some fleet sales and some other uh, activity there. And I, I took over for a person that was hired from Silicon Valley that had no automotive experience. And this, I never met him, but this gentleman was kind of one of these Yahoo, um, let's all make it happen and sell EVs. This is sort of in the realm when GM was building them, but they had to really move the, the, yeah. the vehicles. And he started having parties with movie stars and promising free cars to everyone. So he got kicked out. And um, I left uh, my other division, and my, my boss's boss said, we have an interesting job for you to take over the EV1. And that was, uh, again, the sales and service and customer interface aspect of it as a director. And all of a sudden, people started calling me, you know, hey, this movie star has promised a car. When are you going to give it to her? And stuff like that. You know, Kim Basinger was promised a car. Uh, 
you know, four months ago, what are you going to do? It's like, what? So all this stuff was coming out of the, the, uh, the, the, the ether. And, and another person called and said, well, you promised that my car would be at the Peterson Museum. And when are you going to donate it? And wow. So I had to unravel all that stuff and, and put the program to bed as honorably as I could. But unfortunately, it was, it was a nightmare and sort of led to me deciding to move on from General Motors a, a short time after yeah. that. So. You don't have to wear a disguise in public, do you? No, 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 I don't. But I have to admit, this is the first time I admitted it. You know, did I kill the electric car? No, but I, I did have a job that was uh, disappointing. In 2003, I collected more cars than I sold. And that was somewhat of a bizarre metric at the time. And after that, they put me on a goofy job to sell low-speed vehicles to make NEV credits, which was another story. You know, Ford had their Think division, and Chrysler bought GM, and GM did a uh, kind of a under-the-radar program that I was in charge of just to generate ZEV credits. But that, that's after we have a couple of beers and talk a little bit yeah. further. But uh, it was an interesting time. And I guess the way to wrap this part of the discussion up is to say I'm so glad that EVs have evolved to the extent that they have evolved because the technology of the EV1 was fantastic. It really was. Yeah. It was a technological marvel and a technological success, but it was a commercial failure. And unfortunately, GM started by saying, we want to show everybody how, how great we are innovating, which was wonderful. But then in the early 2000s, they were losing money on about everything except a big truck. And so the metrics shifted to, hey, EV1, you've got to live up to the same metrics as everybody else. And obviously, it, it wasn't going to do well with that. So Yeah. So what are your thoughts on GM's re-entry into the EV market? They had the Volt with a B, then the Bolt with a B. They sound the same, mm -hmm. phonetically. And then you have the Hummer and the Lyric. Why wouldn't they just uh, create a vehicle called the EV2 that looked like a a, a better, more elegant version of the EV1. Why, if they were so successful with the EV1, with all the people fervent about it, why are they trying to be different? The Volt, the Bolt, the Hummer, the Lyric. Why wouldn't they just go EV2? Really? Makes sense to me. Yeah, it sounds good. I'd, I'd love to see them do that. Um, I, I think that there's some realities to it. I mean, in, in terms of affordability, also look to the Equinox EV and some of those other things. And I'm, I'm not doing an advertisement for GM now. I respect them. But, um, you know, they are starting to enter serious volume space with the Blazer and, and the Equinox and so forth. And to their credit, they're doing that. The EV1 was, you know, the first. It was before the, the Prius. It was before the, the, the Honda hybrid, you know. And, but it did have limitations. It was a two-seater. Um, relatively cramped. You could put a couple of you know, golf bags in the back. But it was a limited vehicle in terms of its uh, utility. And so, obviously, for mass adoption of EVs, yeah, you can do a sports car. Tesla started that way, right? Uh, and that's great. But you do have to move on from a sports car or a, you know, a two-seat um, unique car. And I've always been an advocate of if you want to sell a lot of hybrids or a lot of EVs, put them into the vehicles that people buy today. Uh, somebody quoted me in a textbook somewhere uh, about that. And 20 years ago, you know, the, the Prius looked pretty wonky, right? Yeah. And the EV1 was kind of funny. And the, the Honda uh, Insight, right, yeah. that was pretty funny, you know, or Insect, as some people called it, two-seater, right? Um, but thank goodness we're now moving into the mainstream categories because that's where the volume is, so... 
All right, so we've covered a lot of topics today. It's been great. Is there anything you want to wrap up with? Uh, well, I just want to circle back with, with Tesla. We, we've talked about you know how great they are, but there are a couple of things that I think are worthy of um, patting them on the back for. One is we looked at the different bodies out there yeah. and the evolution of the castings, and their ability to manage change on the fly is, is amazing. And uh, as we talked earlier, most people wait an entire vehicle cycle to do those things. So, so kudos to them for that. The other, um, which I'm a big advocate of, and I tried to develop this at Karma, but Tesla's been very good at it, is imagine developing their brand equity without advertising. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. When I was uh, in charge of a mainstream vehicle line at GM years ago, I spent 60, 80, 100 million a year on advertising. And that was traditional stuff of the day, you know, TV and billboards and magazines and so forth. Obviously, it's now quite different with yeah. digital. But to their credit, and they personified the Tesla brand with Elon standing up there. He takes credit for everything that's new. That's fine. He can do that. But... By doing that, it puts a face to the company, and they've brought out a lot of announcements around vehicles, which is absolutely the right thing to do. And a lot of people, including myself, would scoff saying, your semi-truck was four years late. Give me a break. Your, your uh, cyber truck is at least three years late. Give me a break. We haven't even seen that new replacement for the Roadster, even yeah. though you're showing it to me. Now you're talking about people robots. I mean, come on, come on. But by doing that, they're creating um, this halo around the brand that's very cool. And only now, I guess, are they considering true traditional advertising. And their brand is one of the most fondly recognized. Yeah. And they did it all without a billboard or a magazine or a TV commercial. And uh, that's the way you do it. And my, my advice to the Rivians and the Lucids and the the Geely's and the BYD's, if they ever come here, is to do that in terms of a marketing model. Keep introducing the promise. Keep boxing above your weight yeah. class so that you act like a bigger company that, than you are at the time. And that's the way to, to build a company. And yeah. I, I wish I would have been able to ride the wave uh, when I was at Karma because we had some neat things that were coming along that were pretty cool. But unfortunately, the... Uh, the bill was pretty high, and the, the investor wasn't willing to step up, and, and that's okay. That was their choice. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we're just at about an hour. Is there anything else? Is that everything? No, I, I uh, have really enjoyed my time and enjoy the work that you folks do, and I love your taste in, in shirts oh, and yeah. attire. And Yeah. I have the rolled-up sleeve edition, <laughs> and uh, I've enjoyed my time, and, and uh, good to see you. Thanks, yeah, Corey. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you're listening out there or watching, thanks for watching Monroe Live or listening to the Monroe Live podcast. You can find the podcast on anywhere you find your normal podcasts, like Spotify or Apple, Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, if you could subscribe or like, that'd be great. It helps the content do a little better. That's all. Bye-bye.